Hi, and welcome to Adventures in Ventureland, a rainmaking venture studio podcast exploring the weird and wacky world of venture building. Together, we'll interview founders and corporate innovators to explore venture building from all angles. Welcome to the latest episode. I'm Hattie Willis, and today I'm joined by the incredible Melissa Snova, founder and CEO of Remedy Health, who you might know best for Nourished, their direct-to-consumer 3D-printed supplement startup. Already a serial founder before she even started Remedy, Melissa is currently building not one, but two startups, each with their own business model. In addition to Nourished, she's disrupting the health tech space with 3D-printed medicine through Scripted. With 12 patents so far and a base of loyal customers, Remedy Group have just raised their Series A round for $11 million. They're hiring around five people a week as they expand to new products and new markets. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. So jumping straight in, you're a serial founder. How did you get started in entrepreneurship? I started my first company when I was 23 years old while I was still at university doing business school. And I actually started the first company by accident, really. It was part of a project that we had to do for my dissertation (laughs) and it ended up doing quite well. By the end of it, I was employing, I think, three people and it was making a decent amount of money. So I stayed in the UK and continued to run it. It was a financial business. It was such a long time ago, but try and imagine the time before there was crowdfunding and money supermarket. And it was like that for commercial finance. So a search tool that would allow financial advisors to find good solutions for either angel investment or from banks, from traditional lending, and basically helped reorganize portfolios, et cetera. So it was very successful. I made more money than I ever thought I would ever make at that time. And it's funny because that's a very relative thing, the way people look at money, but I didn't love it really. So when I had the opportunity to sell that company, I did. And I started my first FMCG brand directly after with the money that I made from that sale. And that was called Goody Good Stuff. And that was really the world's first vegan, allergen-free gummy candy, which I made because I'm a vegetarian who doesn't like chocolate. And I couldn't find any gummy candy that I liked that didn't taste like wax. So I decided to make some and I developed that product really from scratch. And I knew nothing about what I was doing. It was a humongous education. I did everything from packaging design to formulations, to labeling, to every single sales pitch meeting with every buyer to setting up international distribution. And that was really a huge education that really helped me to move forward in my career. Yeah. And then I sold Goody Good Stuff when it was under three years old. It was the youngest food brand to ever be bought and sold on the food m market. And then I started in 3D printing and that's a weird flex, but actually the reason I really moved from making traditional FMCG products to 3D printing was they were directly correlated. I was making products for good good stuff in huge factories and the minimum order quantities were a hundred thousand units per flavor. And so this made it totally impossible to create even like seasonal items for Christmas Mm. or Halloween. And I was selling goody good stuff all over the world. So I wanted to make regionally specific products that had certain flavor profiles that were really well liked. Like in the Middle East, they love mint lemonade, which is delicious. But over in England, I don't think that would be as popular. Mm. Uh, In America, we have a lot of different flavor profiles than they would accept or understand in the European zone. And it was totally impossible to do that with a traditional manufacturing setup. And certainly the idea of making a unique product for each person is completely unfathomable. And so after I sold GGS, I decided, how do I solve this problem? As a highly empathetic entrepreneur, I really wanted to create a way for everyone to walk out of a shop with exactly what they wanted. You can't overwrite physics, so we can't stock a shelf with enough items to be able to do that. But what if we could? create a device that would allow people to make their own products in stores. And and that was really how I started into the world of 3D printing, which has brought me to where I am today. And so as you've come up with these ideas, it sounds like it's been led by 
A, kind of being in the right place at the right time, being back at business school, being pushed into coming up with an idea, but then really drawing on your own experiences to identify a gap in the market and, and, and move to fill it with your own solution. Absolutely. So with GGS, I wanted to make gummy candy without gelatin. That was my number one thing because if you know what gelatin is made of, it's really gross. And even if you're not a vegetarian, if you know about it, it's really difficult to, to handle. And so that was all I really cared about. But then when I started to look at the market and I started to do market research about what was available, what was out there, I started to see a huge amount of additional types of avoidance of ingredients happening. And this was primarily around allergens. And this was really the beginning of the free from movement. So mm-hmm. I created GGS in 2010, which was 10 years too early for the vegan movement. And God knows I was laughed out of a lot of offices at like Tesco and stuff. <laughs> the buyer at, um, at one of the major multiples in the UK told me to take the word vegan off of the packaging <laughs> because it was going to scare people, which to be fair to him, he was maybe right to be honest yeah. at that stage. But one of the good things was I started to see a lot of other people trying to avoid things like gluten and dairy and artificial dyes and colors, et cetera, which are much more prevalent in the U.S. But either way, parents, a lot of parents were looking for products that were you know, safe for anyone to eat. And so I made that product so full of USPs that it really had a humongous amount of breath that you could propose it to. So it was halal, it was kosher. Mm. It was free from gluten, dairy, soy, eggs, nuts, tree nuts, cassians, and wheat made with all natural colors and flavors, et cetera. And so it became like a solution that was really solving this free from movement situation, which was not my original intention, but I think my nature as an entrepreneur is where I see a gap in the market and people looking for something and not being able to find it, that bothers me on like a cellular level. And I've never developed a product that's answering a question no one's asking. I've really been almost meticulously obsessed with finding solutions for things that I think are really important and that there doesn't seem to be anything available for right now. A lot of people make a lot of money out of making me too products and there's nothing wrong with it to a degree. If you can create something that's less expensive or that can get to market faster. There's certainly a business there, but I've never really done that. I'm, I've been always focused on creating things that have, that have absolutely no parallel. So I, I think once you get used to doing that, it's really exciting. And if you do it well, you can be alone in a market, which is really rare and enjoyable if you can make it happen. And so obviously a great example of that is you created the only food 3D printer and then that's what allowed you to found Nourished. So can you give us a little bit of background on how you went from I have something that can 3D print gummies to the idea for the personalized, hyper-personalized nutrient and supplement company that you now have today? Sure. So Magic Candy Factory was the name of the first printer that I made and that concept was really the first of its kind in the world. We got several patents on the hardware and the delivery device because we were able to make it food safe. Anybody can throw a paste extruder onto a 3D printer and print a smiley face in chocolate. The technical difficulty is not the first step. The first step is how can you make sure that it's safe enough for you to be able to give it to someone and sell it to someone? How can you make a 3D printing process compliant with the hygiene and regulatory rules of the FDA and the FSA. So that was something that nobody had done really in a meaningful way yet. So that was the first step. And that concept was a huge leap forward for 3D printing in a lot of ways. So the printers were the fastest in the world. So we could print like an A5 or half a piece of papers of uh, amount of candy in a unique design in less than five minutes. And that was taking other printers over an hour. So it was a lot Mm. faster. And that was key because people were happy to wait a certain amount of time, but not an hour. So you have to try and make it exciting to watch. And in that model, people were actually coming into the store, wanting to personalize their candy, wanting to be able to take it away with them. It wasn't the direct to consumer. You can post it later. It was still that live retail experience. 
Absolutely. And making it fast and making it also quite theatrical. So the Magic Candy Factory printer has three open sides. They're not open, but they have like clear windows so that you can see it and everything. And the creation process was a large part of the value, right? So people mm. could draw a picture on the tablet and it would print out their picture in candy. And or you could take a photograph or you could write words or make a 3D frog with your name. It doesn't matter. You could create anything really. And then it would come to life very quickly right in front of your eyes and you'd walk away with it. And that was a massive leap forward for 3D printing of food. And that concept was very successful. To be honest, it's still trading now. It's just covid has really curtailed anything around mm. events and experiential retail. So at the moment it's in hibernation, but I'm very confident it will come back in the future. You can still find it in the Dubai Mall, Hong Kong Duty Free, Warner Brothers World, Dylan's Candy Bar, loads of places all over the place. But yeah, at the end of the day, it became really clear to me probably about a year in that although I was so proud of it, it was really not achieving the goal um, that I had in my vision for what the technology was capable of doing and having a really meaningful, valuable impact in people's lives on a daily basis. And so I started to think about the existing IP. And by that level, I think by that stage, we have about six patents around material science and process and hardware. And where in the world is the industry that desperately needs personalization and is not currently getting it from the, the market offering? Again, looking at where is there a major gap and where is there nobody solving it in a meaningful way right now? And it became very clear to me that was going to be health and wellness. And, and initially, I actually started the whole thought process around it focusing on scripted, which is part of Remedy Health. So our business is called Remedy Health and we have Nourished, which is preventative personalized health. So this is anything mm -hmm. around nutrition, functional foods, vitamins, nutrients, protein, etc. And then we have scripted, which is curative health. So this is anything that you would get in a personalized way after you have already been identified as having an illness or an ailment and you're being treated. That's how we divided in our thought process. And so scripted was actually first. We started to look at this idea that I take the same medication as my dad. That's not right, is it? That's so weird. Actually, I think one day we'll look back and go, I can't believe that we did that. When you think about the fact that my clothing is more personalized than the medicine that I'm putting into my body, that seems so wrong. And this idea that every individual human is different, and the idea that there's a one size fits all for any kind of treatment of that mm. basis is really counterintuitive when you say it out loud. Obviously it is that way right now because that's all that's been possible. But this became very clear to me that this had a very high potential of making a meaningful impact. And so we started to work on ways we could personalize medication in live patient care environments. So in hospitals, in pharmacies, in clinics, in wards, allowing doctors nurses and pharmacists to be able to create an unlimited number of variations of dosages of medication to suit the individual patient based on doctor's advice. This would allow for underserviced populations like pediatrics and geriatrics to be able to get the right dosages of medication, mm. which right now they're breaking pills in half and it's very yeah. archaic actually. So this was the first step and we've done a human trial in a hospital on that concept and we're moving through the regulatory approval pathway. And we really hope to be able to pilot that scheme in live patient environments by the end of this year. So that is happening in the background. But Nourish came to me really because preventative health is something that I'm a massive believer in. I've been an entrepreneur for my sins my entire career. And so I've been, I think ever since I was like in my mid twenties, I wake up at 4.30, I work until... I don't know. It depends, but like at least until 7:30 at night, sometimes longer. I used to travel 200 days a year, and my supplement regime, I really credit as one of the reasons why I never get sick. I'm not tired. I do not feel like I want to just lay down, <laughs> which I should. To be fair, yeah. I should feel like that, but I don't because I think I really think it's all about consistency, and I am really consistent. So every single morning. I have green juice and now I have my nourished, but I used to have seven or more tablets um, every morning and I used to carry them around 
in a disgusting Ziploc bag when I used to travel. And really, I guess the light bulb moment came when I was in Dusseldorf airport in the security line and they all just went everywhere, all over the floor. And I'm on my hands and knees in the airport, picking them up, thinking, oh my God, this is awful. You don't want to do that in any airport, but definitely not in a German airport. People were so annoyed with me. They're all just, oh my God, look at this woman. And it was a mess. And and I just kept thinking, there's got to be a better way to do this. And then I thought, oh my gosh, I have a 3D printing food company. Maybe I can do it. So that's really where the idea for Nourish came from. And Really, I went back to the office. We had a deep dive meeting the following day and we started the R&D process the next day. And it took us about six months to do all of our testing. So we did over 10,000 third-party validation lab tests. We spent 100,000 plus man hours in the lab with the number of people that were doing it. And then we launched the Nourish concept in Jan, 2020. And one thing that strikes me is that with all your businesses, you play into huge macro trends, but you're ahead of them. Typically, coming back to the point about you're told to take vegan off the label. And if you look at the the health tech space, hyper-personalization is now the watchword across everyone. Direct-to-consumer is huge. And obviously, Nourished embodies all of that. How much of that do you think you saw coming and you bought into and you believed in versus actually you were part of triggering that movement or how much was it baked into the idea and and the belief in that idea? So the way I think about it is we're startups, so we don't pay for these large market reports, which I'm aware they're valuable and and I've looked at it before. We, We basically are in the market on a daily basis. And I guess I am my target market for Nourished, right? It's always helpful if you are the target market for the product that you're developing, I think as a core starting point. But where I was 100% convinced was the idea that there's a one size fits all or even a 41 buckets fits all approach to nutrients and vitamins and supplements. It just rang false to me. And I felt like there's gotta be a better way. now. What I did feel also quite annoyed by was this idea of pseudo personalization being missold, in my opinion, to the consumer as personalization. And this is what you really see across the entire market so far. So you see companies that are, like I said before, like creating 40 different product sets, and then they're just pushing you into one, even if you have to go through a quiz, really, there's only 40 choices and you're being pushed into one of those. or they're doing a phenotyping questionnaire and then they're just picking a bunch of stuff that's already made and putting it into a plastic sachet with your name on it to add convenience, but not really personalization, I think is the point. And then you get to the point where you hear a lot of large food conglomerates talking about personalization and they use the word a lot, but they don't mean authentic personalization. They mean you know, we're going to come up with 17 different products for different pain points and life events. So like prenatal and teen and this kind of thing. And this is not really personalization in its authentic form. And to me, we always treat our customer intelligently. We don't talk down to our customer. (laughs) And so when I say personalization, I mean it. And we really are the first authentically manufactured personalized supplement in the world. We don't make anything until you order it. Like literally have no stock downstairs sitting on a shelf anywhere. We literally receive orders. All the team downstairs have, everything is electronic. We've got PDAs. It will say, Melissa Snover's order has come through. They scan the correct ingredients. It goes into the printer, the product gets made and it literally is made when you order it. So I think that's really what I want the future of personalization to be more authentic. And Mm. I appreciate that it's difficult to do in a traditional factory sense, which is why I developed 3D printers to be able to do it. But I think when you look at the macro trends, Did I make decisions about what I wanted to do based on macro trends? No. But one of the things that I always do with every company is I try and make our products inclusive. And what I mean by that is I try and make it safe and appealing and approachable to as many different people as we can. So everything we use in Nourished is vegan. 
it's halal, it's kosher, it's 100% natural, it's non-GMO, there's no allergens in it. And those are not the main selling point of the product. This is a personalized gummy vitamin, but in addition to that, it's safe for pretty much anyone to have. And I think that's important to me that we don't create products which in any way preclude a certain person or type of people from being able to take part and enjoy the product. Yeah. I think it's really interesting the point that you make about how much is still, dare I say it, just more detailed personas masquerading as personalization versus actual unique formulas. How many formulas? I think you told me last time. We can do over a trillion. It's actually, this is such a stupid word, but an octagigrion is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) But we would never use that on the website because I I didn't even know what that would be be before I learned about it from this exercise. But in effect, we don't ever make the same product, right? So every five minutes, we're making a month's supply of totally unique product for the very first time. I think that's super cool. We add new options to the inclusion menu all the time. So we're adding a new product into that inclusion menu probably once a month at the moment. So that's increasing the number of possible variations. But we also allow for consumers to double up on certain ingredients if they want to. So Mm -hmm. it just sends the number of options through the roof, basically. Yeah. And how do you come up with those new ingredients to include? So we look at three different things and we have new product development, MPD, brainstorm meetings, usually once a month, sometimes more frequently, depending. But we look at three different things. The first and most important thing is direct customer feedback. So we have really verbal customers who are very responsive and very engaged, and they will tell us what they want. And they tell us regularly what they want. So Mm. when they say something to me, like, I really wish you had, I don't know, biotin, no problem. We'll add biotin and we just do it. Because again, with 3D printing, as opposed to when you make a product in a traditional factory setting, we can do an MPD cycle and do the third-party lab test validation for a new inclusion for around 500 pounds. So I can add as many of those as I want to, and we can do it in around 10 days. So we can answer the market in the same month or the individual customer in the same month that they ask for it, but we, we have very little cost and risk. So instead of making packed product where I have to commit to a million units of flow wrap and put a humongous amount of investment behind it, we're really able to do things like that with very little risk. And so it's wonderful to be able to answer people. So the first one is customer. Number two, is general trends. And so what we look at is search term trends. So what are people actually looking for? And then because of my background from Goody Good Stuff, I have a very good network of retail buyers and heads of departments at retail chains who will tell me, we can't keep this product in stock. This is selling out like mad. If you could make a product better than this, it would be amazing because this product is not very good, but we don't have an alternative. This kind of thing. Yeah. So we take that under advisement. Of course, larger trends such as things like the global pandemic also can have an impact. However, the last point is we use our own consultation scoring. So on our consultation, we have around... 250,000 people that have taken that quiz so far. And the last question is paraphrasing, which of these two things are your highest priority goals for the next three months? Okay. Mm. It's questions like improve my mental health, lose weight, improve my immunity, more energy, so on and so forth. And there's a list of them. I think there's about 12 And we monitor that regularly. I have a dashboard on my computer. I can see it every day and also how it's changing over time. One of the things that you would have thought would have happened when the pandemic happened and even now is that immunity would be winning. Mm. It's not winning. The most prevalent goal is better mental health followed very quickly by shape up or weight maintenance. I think this is down to everybody maybe gaining weight in lockdown, maybe, I don't know, or if that's just a general trend. And then actually the third one is immunity. And then we have energy. And weirdly out of nowhere, number five is now libido and sexual health, which I think again, might be an impact from the whole human condition we are all going through Mm -hmm. at the moment. So people are 
very stressed, that can have an effect on libido and sexual health. It's interesting. So all of those three things feed into our MPD cycle. Then my MPD team and I have to look and see, can we find an ingredient that has 10,000 person plus clinical trial? Because we don't launch things that have no scientific backing. I'm not interested in being in that market. I really like selling things that work that are efficacious and that have a huge body of peer-reviewed science behind them. So if an ingredient is what we call novel or fringe, brand new, Mm. and it doesn't have an unbiased, usually academically backed clinical trial, we won't launch it into the Nourish brand because it's just not our philosophy. If we can find good scientific research behind it, and we can find a supply that is vegan and sustainable, then we will start our testing process. I'm curious, because obviously you have the quiz, which is is the way that customers help you understand what they're looking for. And, and obviously there's a huge translation layer there of people don't know what ingredient they want. They don't know what the solution is. They just know, I want to feel less tired. I want to feel less distracted. I want to perform better on my spin bike and my <laughs> spin classes. How much work has it been for you guys to translate or or is it actually quite easy because you've as you said been doing that work yourself to educate yourself on what you need and therefore you can speak to yourself as the customer yeah the algorithm took longer than the product development so when we did the launch of nourish we developed an entirely new printer which we have had a patent granted on we developed 35 different formulations and we developed the algorithm and the algorithm took the longest. So the algorithm is extremely sophisticated. It has elements of AI and it has emotive learning techniques. So basically we ask questions in a certain way, looking for answers that will help us to build up a picture of the customer overall. So for example, if you told me that you look at a screen for 12 hours a day, but you also work out seven days a week, the algorithm would question, that's not possible, which of these is true. And it's looking for multiple layers of answers in order to come Mm -hmm. up with the most realistic picture, if that makes sense. It also automatically updates on peer-reviewed research. So the weightings that are attributed to each of the ingredients change over time as more research comes out that's validated by academia and the medical community. And a good example of this was, for example, the Boston Medical Research around vitamin D. So when that happened and that was validated by the NHS, Public Health England, et cetera, that automatically sends an updated weighting to D3 around immunity and around certain answers. So this is cool. It comes at it from both sides. In addition, I think there's certain things in the algorithm which are linked to the must to have, right? So if someone is pregnant, for example, they cannot have vitamin A. It's quite dangerous. If you have too much vitamin A when you're pregnant, it can endanger your pregnancy. So if someone answers, yes, I am pregnant or I'm getting pregnant or I'm trying for a baby, there is a logic within the algorithm that makes sure that they never get recommended the vitamin A ingredients. And then the other answers that they put into the quiz are still important, but the number one overarching importance is that they are pregnant or that they are trying for a baby, et cetera. The other really important thing that we ask about is the goals, because in my opinion, which has been validated by our market test so far, the consumer's attitude towards supplementation is changing. And this is my feeling about supplementation as well. I never have taken supplements to fix me. I have Mm -hmm. taken them to give me an edge or a boost, right? So as opposed to thinking about supplements as I'm anemic, I have a deficiency in Mm. iron, I need to take supplements to fix me. We find that the big macro trend happening definitely in America, but growing in the UK as well, is that people are looking at supplements to enhance their day-to-day. So cognitive function, energy, endurance for exercise, focus, calmness and well-being. These are not things where your doctor would say you have a deficiency from vitamin Mm. C, you should get a vitamin for that. It's more about utilizing the benefits of nutrients and superfoods to be able to enhance your life as opposed to fix anything. I'm really interested with that. What do you see as the connection between 
we can increasingly track these things with smart technology. I can know how I'm sleeping. I can know how my endurance is comparing this week versus last week if I'm going to the gym. How much is that driving the behavior versus just there is this big movement towards us all being aware that we can, for want of a better term, biohack ourselves and actually start to, to improve our performance across everything. Yeah, I think biometric testing is very exciting. I think it's still got a ways to go before it's really valuable. Mm. So there are certain things that certainly your smartwatch can tell you like your heart rate. Yes, definitely. It can tell me an accurate picture of my heart rate. If Nourish was getting that information about a customer, it would probably tell us a little bit about whether they have high levels of stress. And this makes me sound like a psycho, but we do a lot of market research. And I used to wear two different smart watches and an aura ring to track my sleep. All of them were widely different. What they said happened. Interesting. So this is my question is who's checking these people that are giving us this advice about what this information means. I have no doubt that they're able to check something, but who is the one validating what information they're taking from the information that they're getting. And I think that's where I'm excited for the technology to further develop. So there's more data sets, there's more reference points, and there's more people looking at it and validating it, because then I think we could start to get some really meaningful stuff coming out. But this is, I'm not kidding, I did it for two and a half weeks. And even things like my step count were so widely different from both hands. And then, yeah, the sleep one was the most noticeable. One of them thought that I was sleeping amazing. One would send me messages going, not every day can be your best day. Go ahead and take it easy. And I was like, yes, it can. (laughs) Don't talk to me like that. But it was really, it was an interesting experiment. The other thing that I've done again, makes me sound quite psychopathic. I have taken every single DNA test that there is on this market right now. In America and the United Kingdom, again, relatively different results. Again, my DNA hasn't changed. So how is it possible that the same data set is giving me a 20 page document from one of these companies (laughs) that's saying, you should really do HIIT exercise and drink more milk and blah, blah, blah. And then the other one is saying something quite contradictory. Again, because DNA science is so vast because it is in its infancy and compared to blood science, really, it is very new. 23andMe came out probably what, about 15 years ago. And it was really the first one to make it mainstream to get your DNA tested, but that's still 15 years in comparison to how long have we been using blood as a testing mechanism for health. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they come up with and the data flows that start to be more regular and the science that would be more trustworthy, I think, in Mm -hmm. order to get some meaningful action points. Then you have blood testing, people testing for vitamin deficiency with blood. I don't understand it. Every day, what you eat affects the concentration of water-soluble vitamins in your blood. So if you take a blood test and you haven't eaten anything all day, you could be deficient from loads of stuff. Whereas if you had a really beautiful rainbow breakfast and took a blood test the same day, you would be flying, you'd be 100% of everything. So I worry again about people selling blood tests for vitamin deficiency Mm -hmm. as well. And then you have microbiome, which is the youngest of all of these things, but has the most potential in my opinion. And microbiome has the ability, unlike DNA, on blood testing, but to give us an accurate and up-to-date real-time picture of what's happening today in your body. Genetics is cool, but epigenetics and RNA expression is still very new. It's not been around long enough for us to get meaningful data sets to be able to compare, contrast, and check each other. Whereas microbiome, I think, has the potential to facilitate what we call clinical nutrition advancement. So could there be solutions to be curative, which are based around nutrition as opposed to pharmaceutical drugs? I think there's so much potential, but again, it's still a little bit early to be able to take really meaningful data and feel 100% confident in it. You're listening to Adventures in Ventureland, a Rainmaking Venture Studio podcast. In this episode, we're speaking to Melissa Snover, founder of Remedy Group. If you're enjoying the episode, please do remember to rate, share, and subscribe at the end so you never miss another episode.
And how do you measure or try and inform how things are working for customers, what they need to update maybe in, in their stack? So we always encourage people to check back in every three months minimum. Mm. And we send out little mails to remind them of that. And we certainly also keep them updated when new products have launched, especially if the new product that we are launching relates to one of the answers that they gave. Yeah. So that's a nice way to keep people engaged. But in general, this idea that you should take the same vitamins all year round is also equally ridiculous. That's hilarious. I do totally different things in the summer than I do in the winter. And certainly my nutrient requirements are different. So we really encourage people to check back in minimum every three months. There's no cost to change your stack. You could change it every single month if you wanted to. It's the same. And that seems to keep the engagement levels very high. We have extremely high retention rates, like 87%. So I think that it's working right now. But in the future, we want to be able to link to things like biometric testing and potentially even offer our customers the opportunity to link things like a microbiome test data set to our recommendation engine to create yeah. an even more powerful recommendation. But yeah, we just want to be hundred percent confident in the advice that we're giving because people trust us and we've fought really hard to keep that trust and I, yeah. and I don't want in any way to damage it at any time. Brilliant. And I, I think the really interesting thing as well is you, you talked earlier about designing for inclusion from the start. We want to make sure that we're not inadvertently ruling out anyone from the product whether you're pregnant whether you're following halal diet is it something that has been influenced by your own experiences I think being a vegetarian when nobody was a vegetarian made me think about it in a different way because I couldn't find when I started being a vegetarian there was no corn there was no beyond meat there was nothing you had to literally make like beans and rice and stuff you had to go to Subway and get the sandwich which is like the bread with the vegetables on the inside like it was a very different time it's wonderful now there's so many things Mm -hmm. but I just remember thinking I always had to be prepared that I wouldn't be able to find something that was suitable for me. And that was disappointing constantly. And I just don't ever want to be part of that problem. I think I would love to be the other side of that, which is the solution, which is safe for everyone. When we had goody good stuff, the best thing, the best ever testimonial we got was from this lady who had a child who was um, vegetarian and gluten and dairy intolerant. And she wrote me this letter about how every single year at Halloween, at every birthday party that her child went to at school, she had to send him with handmade snacks that she would make because there was nothing that he could go and bring into school and share with everyone and have himself. Mm. And that now that she had goody good stuff, she was able to give that away at Halloween. She was able to send that with him to school on his birthday. And she was just very happy about the fact that he didn't have to feel like he was different from everyone and he was able to participate in a way which was inclusive yeah I love that and what if anything do you think has been different about your experience as a female founder being a female founder I try and focus on the advantages that it gives me of course like anyone I'm sure that lots of women have stories where You look back and you're like, I can't believe that happened. And it's something that would never be okay (laughs) if it was flipped around. But I try not to focus on that. I try and focus on the fact that I've made it to where I am today, not because I've been given special treatment for being a woman. And certainly there are people making the argument that there's this reverse priority happening in certain areas. I'm not going to get into, but I am where I am today because I fought very hard. I worked very hard and I became the best person to be in the room. And I think if anything, when people have underestimated me, and that's really the most overarching prevalent feeling that I've had, and it happens less and less as I'm getting older, but You just feel like you walk into a room and you're being underestimated. You're not being taken seriously. I've had people ask me to take the minutes when I'm chairing the board meeting. I've I've walked into meetings and people not look at me, but look at my junior sales manager and not speak to me and ask them questions instead of me. And I'm like, that's a weird feeling because you're like, you're a little bit shocked by it because I don't expect it because it doesn't enter my mind of ever treating anyone like that. And I treat everyone with respect regardless of any of that kind of stuff. It doesn't even enter my mind that you would make a judgment about someone for anything 
other than their character and how they treat you. And so when do people do it to me, once the shock wears off, I use it to my advantage because really if people are not taking me seriously, that's a mistake. And yeah, oftentimes you have to make people pay for that. And that's the way that you don't let it affect you. It doesn't in any way define me. It says something about them. And I think you just have to focus on that. When I talk to girls and I do a lot with mentorship for young women around technology and STEM and coding and in general, leadership and business, I try and really shift their view from this whole women, you will be disadvantaged, be ready to don't think about it like that. Think about it as if somebody does that to you, that's two football teams going into a game and one of them not training the night before because they didn't think they were going to be a very good opponent. And the other team just absolutely walked on the floor with them because they didn't take it seriously. Think about it like that and use it to your advantage. That's great advice. I love it. And <laughs> so back to Nourished. A question I had on the approach you took, because everything is in-house, your product design, your marketing, your sales, your manufacture. And that's quite unique for a direct-to-consumer proposition. I assume it's brought both challenges and and real advantage. Starting with the challenges, what, what has been hardest about that approach? It's certainly more complex. And absolutely, you're right. I don't know any other startup with the level of complexity that we have here. We are so full stack that we make our final nourished product end to end. So raw material comes in the building, we print our own packaging, we make the entire food product all the way through and what leaves the, the building is the final product. But on top of that, across the street, we have our second factory. And in that building, we build the production machines that make the product. So we are full stack. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly, it is more complex, more CapEx heavy for sure in the beginning, Yeah, but it was really not a choice if I'm being honest. In my past, when I made goody good stuff, I made that with other factories. I never had my own factory before and I just found it to be untenable. You're constantly at the whim of another person. If you get a delivery and it's bad quality, too bad. You now mm. have to disappoint your retail customers. And then when I had Magic Candy Factory, I was making the machines myself too. And we actually contracted some machine builds to another company. And the night before a humongous launch, 12 of them came and they were all broken. All of them, 12. And I had to stay up in the middle of the night for three nights. I didn't sleep at all. I was doing press interviews in the daytime. It was awful, actually. I was so delirious by the end. And staying up all night through the night with my CTO, fixing them, flashing firmware, rewiring things. It was crazy. The customer never knew. But, oh my God. And that kind of experience has happened to me so many times that I felt extremely resolute around the fact that I wanted to be able to ensure the promises of quality that I make to the Nourish customer are under my control to keep. And, yeah. and I think that's what we've done really here. Now we have 50 factory staff. That is complicated. There's a whole nother level of the business, which you have to make sure that you build infrastructure to support incentive programs. And I go down and I work in the production and make sure that they, they are with me and they see me and I update them on our progress. Because honestly, even if my online marketing team is excellent, which they are, it doesn't really matter if we can't make anything. So everybody has to be working together in order for the whole thing to fly. And it is flying great, but it takes a lot of focus and a lot of thought to make sure all those different cogs, and we have eight departments now, all work together as best possible as we go forward. So I think in that way, certainly more complex. I totally understand why most startups wouldn't touch that kind of a model and maybe wouldn't even be capable of executing it. By the time I got to this part in my career, I had successfully launched four brands and I had learned a lot and, and I got to take that experience into this process, which has really helped us to, we launched on time and under budget, which I don't know a lot of startups that can say that. It's really rare. Don't, if you are a startup, don't think that you need to do that. Nobody does it. But this is the benefit of being through the process of launching a brand new concept several times and being extremely meticulous in planning, but understanding how to plan. Everyone always says, oh, where's your business plan? 
a business plan is only as good as the assumptions that it's based on and assumptions based on no experience are quite risky. <laughs> and I think what's interesting, obviously, with your background is that uh, in our model at Rainmaking Venture Studio, we partner with corporates who bring unfair advantages. And actually in your model, you are bringing the unfair advantages. You've got the patented technology, which is incredible. I, I know you've updated it and created a new machine, but you had that base of knowledge you could build off. And then when you think about the network and the deep understanding of everything, as you said, from having actually been through that experience before of manufacturing your own products, of all the retail chains and of the consumer experience, that is a breadth of connection, network and deep understanding that is very hard to mirror normally in an individual. It obviously shows in what you've been able to achieve. And we talked earlier about Remedy Group is obviously the big group and you've not just got nourished as if one <laughs> scaling startup wasn't enough you've actually found time to do scripted as well so briefly touching on scripted tell us more about about where that's evolving and what's next for that so scripted is potentially the bigger business in the long run right I think nourished has the potential to be absolutely massive a global business for sure we're launching Nourish Kids, Nourish Protein will come out by the end of the year. That concept has so much room to expand. But at the same time, if we're being really just logical, personalized medicine as an opportunity is a considerably larger opportunity in the scheme of things. So what we're doing with Scripted, and to be really clear, we actually now have 12 patents because we've applied for so many more. And Scripted has its own machine, its own patents. Nourished has its own patents and, and its own machine, totally different machines. And this is, again, maybe one of the benefits that we have by building our infrastructure the way we did is we can literally say, I want to make this product. We need a new machine to make that. We build the machines after we know what we want them to make, as opposed to the other way around, if, that, if you yeah. understand what I mean. So the Scripted printers are very different. The Scripted printers are smaller than Nourished. They are focusing on single API dosaging control. And in the future, of course, we hope to be able to combine different medications into polychewables, but that is a much longer regulatory approval process. So we're focusing on where can we make the most impact and create the most value with what we have relatively today. And so in the first instance, we're using the printers in clinical trial settings for drug manufacturers to be able to use them in scale of phases of trials at the moment, they're literally buying humongous amounts of minute dosage variations in tablets from a traditional factory to use in clinical trials. It's costing a fortune. It's slow and mm. it's extremely wasteful. So drug waste is a huge issue for the environment. Of course, there's an economic impact, but really the environmental impact of drug waste can also be quite dangerous. Drugs, depending on what there's inside of them, can have a very detrimental effect on the local environment and ecosystem. So by using our machine, they can create a different dosage of the scale of trial requirements in a matter of seconds over and over again. And this speeds them up creates zero waste. Okay. 2% waste is what we are currently on and is able to allow them to create even more robust data sets so they can bring the drugs to market with better recommendations for doctors when the drug goes live. So they can even, you know, right now it'll say, if you have a child between blah, blah, and blah, 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 who weighs X amount, then give them this much. Imagine that level of data times a hundred. This is what they can be doing. If you have a child who already has X, and is this much, but is losing weight plus this. You can give so much more yeah. information and you can create much more meaningful baselines for doctors to be able to look at prescribing those drugs and treating patients well, which is the end goal. Mm. So that's one. And then the other one is what I mentioned at the very beginning, which is using the printers in live patient environments and pharmacy environments. So with most drugs, like 90% plus of drugs that are developed for the adult population. And pediatrics and geriatrics are an afterthought. And so what happens normally is you bring a drug to market for adults, and then you get a bit of kind of demand or request for it. Can we give this to kids? Then they go back and they do a bit of a uh, test on it. And then they say, yeah, okay. But actually there's not enough of a commercial demand for us to make that many variations on the dosage. 
So what you end up getting is people breaking pills in half and so on and so forth. And some of the statistics on this are extremely upsetting. So one in 10 children that was admitted to hospital in the United States last year was there because of misdosaging of medication. And of those children, 35% either died or had a long-term chronic or uh, health complication. And that is unacceptable to me, unacceptable. And so by using our printers, the human error, the breaking pills in half, all of this goes away and children can receive the exact dosage that they need in a chewable format, which is easier to get them to take as well, which is also a major issue. And the wastage of the drug is eliminated completely. And in the UK alone, they waste over 300 million pounds worth of drugs a year. So think of all those different benefits mm. with a simple dispensary device, which yeah. would allow you to create an unlimited number of dosages. There's loads of other potential impacts. So instead of having to stock in your little pharmacy, all these amoxicillin 500, amoxicillin 250, mm. amoxicillin 1250, you could literally just have syringes and you could produce whatever it was you needed. So you could also streamline your supply chain. You could make more room in your facility to do other things. There's so many other potential benefits, but my must win in the entire project is a benefit to patient care. And that's mm. what we're focusing on first. And how on earth, apart from obviously the answer being nourished, how on earth are you doing this in terms of <laughs> multiple businesses, multiple business models, and all at a really high growth early stage where there's a lot of risk that can't be stepped away from? It's not a process that's just executing. You're still very involved. So how do you do it? Yeah, you're right. A lot of people go, don't worry, you just delegate. I'm like, you cannot delegate at this stage. You, can, Of course you can, and you should delegate everything that you can. But there are certain things that cannot be delegated at this early stage. And I think, how am I doing it? I, it's a very simple answer. Of course, nourished, nourished. But my incredible team, I'm the luckiest person in the world to have the best people I've ever met and respect most in the world in their respective fields, all working with me to make this dream a reality. And they have the same level of belief in it as I do. And I am grateful for that every single day. And everybody in our business is a part owner of the company. And I just cannot believe how many absolutely superstar people we've been able to bring into this. When I was younger and problems would come, it would destroy me mentally, to be honest. I didn't enjoy my young career very much because I was living on the edge of a nervous breakdown all the time. And that was partially because I didn't have enough experience to have confidence in my ability to overcome things, but also because I was alone. I couldn't even afford a staff. When I had goody good stuff, I was hacking Amazon orders. I was answering every social media question. It was so stressful. But now when we have a challenge and God knows our challenges are much bigger when I look back in comparison to where I was dealing with before, I'm not saying that we're flipping and it'll all be fine. That's certainly not how we approach it, but I feel calmer in my heart because I know that no matter what, this many incredibly uh, committed, intelligent, skilled people in a room together, all working towards a solution it's not a question of if we will overcome it, it's a question of when. And I think that just helps me to enjoy the whole process more than I ever have in my career. And I'm really grateful for that. And so you talked about everyone as part owners uh, and so they feel bought in. Are there other things that you're doing to build this culture that is tight and driving for the same goals and, and being able to surmount those hurdles? Obviously intelligent people can get you a long way, but it can only get you so far. I think culture is so key. Absolutely. I've never run a business this big before. Like when I say big, like the number of people. And so I didn't set out, let's write our cultural protection plan. Like I, we didn't do that. We have, we have a very strong set of OKRs and everything that keep uniting the business. And we have probably the most well-supported and beneficial communication structure of any business I've worked in because we are even now more remote and we haven't missed a beat. And that's because everybody is very communicative and everything is moving, you know, like multiple waves at the same time all together. But really it happens because when I started my CTO 
my head of MPD, my head of formulations and my head of people. Those were my first four employees that I hired and they're incredible. And we have grown together and then built a really great team of other people who have the same kind of conscientious, committed feeling around the business as we do. And that has really helped us. Now, as we go forward, I used to take everybody out for drinks. We used to do loads of fun stuff. Like we did Crystal Maze and we're nerdy. So we like stuff like that. But obviously I can't do anything. I even had to shut the company gym because we're not allowed to let people go in there. Like we have a gym on site. We have a really cool rooftop garden. We provide food for breakfast and lunch. Everyone gets a free bicycle or an electric scooter. We have Bupa. But these are really just perks. The culture is something different. And I think it's just this general overarching feeling amongst all of the team that we can count on each other as individuals and as a group to do whatever it takes. And, and everybody buys into that and, and nobody lets it down. And if we bring someone in, which is rare, that doesn't, <laughs> it's very obvious, very quick. And I don't even have to say anything. The team bring it to me. They're like, eh. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. They're protecting our business. Mm. I'm, I don't have to always be the only one to do that now. And that's really nice. It's validating in a lot of ways. And so how much movement is there between who's working on scripted, who's working on nourish? Is it very fluid because they're scripted at an early stage as well? Most of the team are working on nourished and myself, and the MPD team and the technical team work on scripted because it's not in the market, right? So it's a different set of skills and really it's still in the regulatory pathway. So most heavily it's myself and my CTO, but also our head of MPD definitely helps. In general though, the rest of the team are all focused on Nourish. Nourish is a humongous and very growing train, right? If anything, we can't hire people fast enough. We're hiring like five people a week And that seems nuts to me when I say it out loud, but actually it's not really enough. (laughs) need more people (laughs) even sooner. And so at the moment you're fundraising and expanding as well in the US. So tell us more about that growth and what's next and where you're excited to see the company expand. So we're doing the Series A for Remedy Health. So Remedy Health is the only company we are raising in order to facilitate expansion of the business, both into new regions, but also into new product disciplines. And we will use some of that money to build a production facility in the United States. The U.S. market, we opened via an online platform in October. I guess it was the very end of October. So call it November of last year. And it's exceeded all of our expectations. The growth is faster. The access to the customer is less expensive than we thought. The customer is extremely enthusiastic. So All signs point that this is going to be a great opportunity for Nourish to expand going forward. And it's our business's belief that we should always make product in market for market. We haven't been able to do that so far because of the restrictions on freedom of movement. But as soon as we are, we will definitely do that. The other money will be going to further scripted development, the Nourish Protein launch. So Nourish Protein will be a totally different printer again, which we've already built a prototype of which will allow us to personalize protein bars and allow for an unlimited number of different combinations around flavors, but also the inclusion of specific and personalized higher format micronutrients. So this is going to be really cool. Nobody's ever done anything like this before. And so that will be another unit, another production set up. And then, yeah, just continually growing the team and making sure that we give the business the resources it needs. The market after the United States that we're looking at is the Middle East, but that's really going to happen at the beginning of 2022. And I'm thrilled to share that since recording this episode, Remedy Group have closed their Series A round, having secured $11 million in funding. New investors include ADM Ventures and Cybers Fund, and follow-on funding was secured from After Capital and Henkel X. This brings the company's value to more than $71.6 million, and that's been achieved just a year and a half after they launched. A huge congratulations to the whole Remedy team. Can't wait to see you scale. Now, back to the podcast. The final question, because you've got so much on your plate already, hopefully you can give away a few ideas for free. Where would you look next, either for the technology, for the health and well-being space to evolve to? What are you watching? One of the things I've been cognizant of recently is the court cases around the gig economy. 
There's going to be a massive upheaval in the gig economy, and this would affect everybody who's not paying their employees on a full-time basis. So Just Eat and all these people, and of course, Uber, which is what the case was about. There will be huge opportunities to find an alternative model for that. That is billions and billions of dollars of opportunity. Mm. I also think there's quite a lot of opportunity potentially around cryptocurrencies, are now being accepted by major banks, MasterCard, et cetera. That will be an interesting one to be watching how you create a business model around that. I'm not 100% sure, but I definitely think that will be a main focus of growth in financial markets going forward. It just becomes like a store of value, like gold or like a painting or a piece of jewelry as opposed to a real currency. So I think that would be really interesting. And then I think when it comes to health and wellness, I think about personal care and I think about the plastic situation, which is a huge issue. And it's becoming more and more a reason to buy or not to buy by the customer. And I think there's a lot that could be done to create more innovative packaging solutions to eliminate shampoo bottles and all this stuff that is mostly 75% water inside. So I think there would be a big opportunity there. I know there are a couple of people playing in it right now, but there's a big opportunity, I think, to be able to hit that market with no more plastic, no more lost space in your cabinet, in your bathroom. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, for digging into Remedy Group and for sharing your experience. It's been brilliant to have you on and I'll be watching closely what you're up to next. Nourish has an incredibly exciting startup growth model and the impact that scripture can deliver is so inspiring. The potential for that to just genuinely disrupt an industry that touches so many of us that we all need and that we rely on and we don't have an alternative to is remarkable. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adventures in Ventureland. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please remember to like, share and subscribe so you never miss another episode.